So uh, already, uh, kind of a lot of uh, things to think and pray about this morning, uh, but we are going to turn our attention to the Word of God. And uh, as you may have uh, heard, we're, we're taking a bit of a break from our Hosea series. Yes, another break, I know, but uh, we will finish Hosea after Easter. Uh, but this Easter season, it is, it is almost Easter. The sun came out, even though there's snow. Uh, spring is here. And uh, I wanted to, to give us some time. Uh, to kind of think deeply, think carefully uh, about the Easter story, about the, the events leading up to the cross. And so uh, today we're going to start an, a six-week Easter series uh, looking at those events. We're going to look specifically at the Gospel of John, uh, kind of the last bit of chapter 18 and uh, chapter 19. And we're going to look at the scene between Jesus and Pilate. Now, if you know Pilate, uh, if you've heard that name, you know he's the guy, he's the Roman governor who uh, ultimately uh, condemned Jesus or or sentenced him to be crucified. Uh, He's in all of the gospel accounts, uh, but in John, John is unique because he gives us uh, not just kind of the the details of what happened, uh, he gives us the actual interaction between Jesus and Pilate as as Pilate interrogated him. Uh, We're not quite sure how John got this information, uh, it could be that one of Pilate's servants came to faith, and then he told, you know, John after the fact, or it could be that Jesus himself, after he was resurrected, he went and spoke with John about it. Uh, but regardless of how we got the information, uh, this scene is very powerful uh, because, again, it doesn't just give us details, it really takes us into the heart of the Easter story. It takes us into the heart of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and the reality that, uh, in some sense, each one of us is, is kind of in Pilate's shoes. Uh, we need to decide what to do with Jesus. Uh, do we reject him? Uh, do we believe him? Are we willing to stake our reputation and our lives on this man who claimed to be God and king? So the plan is to go through the, the scene fairly slowly, kind of one passage at a time. Uh, we're going to begin today with the Jewish leaders bringing Jesus to Pilate. So it's very early uh, on Friday morning, Good Friday, we would say. Uh, The night before, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, all of the, you know, uh, all of his followers flee. Uh, He's taken by the Jewish and Roman uh, guards, taken to the Jewish court. He goes to see Annas and Caiaphas, the authorities of the day, the Jewish authorities. They fairly quickly condemn him. They find some reason to condemn him uh, to death. And for that, they need to go see Pilate. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story and begin our, our passage. This is John 18, 28. Uh, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him. If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So if you can imagine the scene, uh, this is all taking place uh, kind of on Pilate's front porch. Uh, normally this would have been done indoors, uh, but uh, the Jews would not enter the, the headquarters. Look at verse 28. They themselves would not enter uh, the governor's headquarters. So they would not be defiled. Right? They couldn't enter into a Gentile's home. They wanted to eat the Passover. 
But what I want us to do sort of at the front end here is really understand who the people are and what are the underlying motivations? Like what's the, the tension, the things that are going on? So a couple of questions. Uh, number one, what did the Jewish leaders want? Might be kind of obvious. They wanted Jesus dead. But why? Why do they want Jesus dead? Why this extreme uh, need to have uh, Jesus be killed? Well, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, uh, Jesus uh, had begun as kind of a slight annoyance. He was this rabbi, kind of a rogue rabbi, teaching, preaching, kind of unorthodox things, doing miracles, a lot of crowds. Uh, but over the years, he'd be begun, uh, he became not just an annoyance, but in their mind, a real threat. Uh, they, they, he was saying things that weren't just amazing or astounding. He was saying things that were shocking, like he was the Messiah. And they knew that if this continued, that there would be, there would be a revolt. And that that would threaten their position, that would threaten the peace. And so they had a meeting about this where we get a window into what, what was going on in their minds. So this is John 11, 47 to 50. This was, uh, you know, a year, years earlier. This is when they were deciding what to do. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. There's obviously some layers to that last sentence. Uh, what they meant for them is, look, it's better that this, this guy die than uh, our nation be, you know, set into turmoil and Rome come down upon us. But the deeper truth, of course, that they didn't realize was that it was better for Jesus to die to save the people from their sin, to save the whole nation from their sin. But they, they couldn't see that because they didn't really believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, all they could see was the trouble that Jesus was causing and so he needed to go. That was the answer they came to. The best thing is for him to be killed. Everything would stop. But for that to happen, they had to go see Pilate. And Pilate, frankly, was not like their most favorite person. Uh, so let's answer the next question. Who was Pilate? We're going to hear a lot from Pilate over the next few weeks. We're going to see him and Jesus talking a lot. So it's good for us to understand who is this guy. Uh, Pilate was originally from Spain. Uh, when he was a young man, he joined uh, the legions of Germanicus, which was his Roman general, and they fought the wars on the Rhine River. That's what you did as a young man, right? You, when you were, I don't know, 16, 17, you went off to war uh, to prove yourself. If you survived, you came back, and then you made a life for yourself. And so uh, Pilate moved to Rome to make his fortune. And he did this by marrying into a well-connected family, right? Always a good way to go. Uh, his marriage actually uh, tells us a lot about what kind of a man he was because he married a woman named Claudia Priscilla. Now, this marriage was very good for his career. Uh, Claudia's grandfather was the emperor. So right away, a lot of connections. Uh, that's how he became uh, ruler of this area. So good for his career, but socially speaking, uh, this was not a great choice. His wife's family was notorious in the Roman social circles. Uh, his mother-in-law, Julia, she was described uh, by all as being a depraved, is a word they would use for her, a crude woman, a woman with coarse habits. Uh, we don't know the specific details. I didn't like Google search that. I didn't want to do that. But uh, 
the Romans, if you think about it, think about their culture, the morality of their culture. These were people who had very, very loose sexual morals. These were people who, for a good time, on a Friday night, they went to the Colosseum to see people getting torn apart by lions. So if these people are saying that you are rude and depraved, that, that's saying something, right, about you. Uh, Julia's own father, okay, would say this about her. Okay, whenever uh, someone would mention his daughter, he would, he would say this, oh, would that I were wifeless and childless. That's how he would respond. Okay, so this woman, we're not sure, but she was someone that everyone steered clear of. So all of the noble young Roman men, they steered clear of her daughter. They didn't want anything to do with her family. But Pilate, Pilate wasn't so put off by coarse habits, by depravity, right? For him, he was interested in the connections and he got them. That's why he was put into this, this spot. Uh, a few years earlier, maybe four or five years earlier, uh, he became the procurate of the Judea region, which is uh, why Jesus ends up on his doorstep. Now, there's a couple of stories that help us to understand Pilate even more deeply and also the relationship he had with the Jewish people. So here are two stories from his early days uh, in Judea in this uh, role of authority. Uh, I'm going to give them names. The first uh, story name is Stadium Standoff. Here's what happened. Uh, you have to understand, before this point, there were other people in charge of this area before Pilate. And most of the other rulers, they had uh, been sensitive about the, the convictions of the Jewish people. So uh, they ruled the area. They had a strong military presence in the area, but they didn't incite the Jewish people. They didn't uh, march their soldiers through town, for example. They didn't have big flags, big Roman standards up all over town because they knew that the Jewish people would get, you know, they would get agitated. They would, it would wreck the peace. They didn't really care about the Jewish people. They just, you know, they were good leaders. They wanted to keep the peace. Uh, guess how Pilate responded? His tactic was very different. Uh, when he was marching in, you know, to sort of take control, assume his position, it was night, and he sent his legions through town, galloping through town, carrying the flags, right, waking everyone up just so they knew who was there, who was in charge. Then they put these big uh, standards. I'll show you a picture of what they would look like. They would have these kinds of, of things with big emblems. I don't know if that guy would actually cut it as a Roman soldier. He looks a little old, a little pudgy, but that, but that was what they had. This is a reenactment. So imagine that you wake up as a Jewish person, all of a sudden there's all these flags all over your town. Well, not surprisingly, they lost their mind. They, they were very upset. They stormed into the streets and they demanded that Pilate would take down all of these Roman flags. Pilate said, no way, right? He wanted them to know, look, we're in charge, we're Rome, you're subject to us. Day after day, this happened. Five days, the people are in the streets protesting. Five days, Pilate said, no way. Finally, Pilate decided, I gotta do something about this. So he invited them into the stadium so we're going to have a talk about this. So once everyone was in the stadium, he surrounded the stadium with his soldiers and he said, look, uh, either you go home and be quiet about this or you're all going to die. Right? He's like, we're the Romans. Okay, don't mess with us. Guess what the Jews did? They threw themselves on the ground, bore their necks and said, fine, kill us all. Okay, we'd rather die than be in this city with you defaming our city. And Pilate was shocked. <laughs> he realized he'd backed himself into a corner. He couldn't kill all these people without a huge uprising, which would get back to Rome, and he would be in trouble, so he had to back down. Jews won, Pilate zero, okay? That's the first story. Second story is similar. I'm calling it aqueduct outrage. Uh, Pilate gets the idea that he wants to rebuild the aqueducts, which is a good idea. Everyone loves water. Everyone needs water. This is a good thing, but 
he decides to pay for it by raiding the Jewish temple treasury. Right? Not a good idea. So he goes in, takes all the money. This is money, like sacred money. So again, they lose their minds. They storm into the streets. But Pilate learned from last time. So this time, instead of surrounding the people, what he does is he disguises his soldiers as common people. And he has them go into the crowd with clubs and with daggers. And then at a signal, they start attacking the, the protesters. But instead of it looking like the Romans were attacking the protesters, it looks like the protesters are attacking themselves. A whole bunch of people die. And Pilate gets his way, but he, of course, stokes the fires of, of hatred between the Jews and the Romans. So there are lots of stories like this, actually, between Pilate and the Jewish people. And so just so we have in our mind, this is the tension that was there. And this is the kind of person that we're dealing with. He's morally corrupt. He's brutal, right? Doesn't, doesn't bat an eye at taking people out if necessary. Very stubborn. No friend of the Jews, clearly, but also he's someone who is willing to make peace if it serves his own ends. So with this in mind, let's look again at this initial interaction. Okay, verse 29. Pilate went out to them and he said, what accusations do you bring against this man? Uh, this is like the beginning of a court proceeding, right? It's basically him saying, court is in session, tell me, tell me what is going on. It's a very normal way to start the proceedings. No surprises here, but it's interesting. If you look at the response from the Jewish leaders, uh, they do seem surprised. In fact, their tone seems very irritated. Uh, look at verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? It seems like they're very annoyed, which is strange because the question that Pilate asked wasn't a surprising question. Like if the Jewish leaders thought that Pilate was going to condemn Jesus to death, you, you would think that they would, they would bring some charges, right? They would expect, we're going to have to explain why this guy needs to be killed. But they don't seem to be expecting this question and they seem irritated that Pilate is even asking this question. So, so why is this? Right? What, what's the... What's going on here that we, we don't know yet? Well, historians and commentators say, look, here's probably what happened. Uh, probably a pilot, like he's acting like this is the first he's heard of it, but this is probably not the first he's heard of this. Uh, we know this because when Jesus was arrested, there were Roman guards there. There were Roman officers, right? The Jewish leaders just didn't come. They brought a whole Roman legion with them, and that only happens with Pilate's approval. So probably what happened is that the Jewish leaders went to Pilate like the day before, and they said, look, here's this guy. Okay, we, we, we want to put him to death. He's causing a lot of trouble for us, which is a lot of trouble for you. So the best thing is that if we just work together and, uh, and he's put to death, everyone is happy. Pilate, we would you'd be fair to say that he isn't bothered by shady kind of dealings, right? He wants to do the thing that is going to keep the peace. So probably he agreed to it. But now, now that they've brought Jesus, uh, he seems to be not going along with the plan. And this is the great mystery of Pilate, right? How do we understand his interactions with Jesus? Because this, this deviation from the plan is also a deviation from his character, the character that we kind of know him to be, and it doesn't stop just with this initial interaction, right? If you look through the whole sequence through chapters 18 and 19, Pilate seems to be doing everything in his power not to put Jesus to death. In fact, look, look at the next words he speaks, verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
right? He, they're saying, we, you, you already know that, Pilate. He's not saying something no one understood. Everyone knew the Jews, the Romans had taken that power away from the Jewish people. They couldn't condemn anyone to death. So why is he saying this? What's going on with Pilate, this, this brutal, self-serving Roman official who was ready to attack an unarmed crowd, all of a sudden seems very gun-shy. What's, what's the deal? Some commentators will say, look, this is just Pilate giving the Jewish leaders a hard time, right? He's trying to stick it to them, saying, look, I'm in charge, just making them jump through the hoops, which might, you know, might explain this initial interaction, but it doesn't really explain the rest of the chapter, because we're going to see him question Jesus at great length, in great detail. We're going to see him uh, send Jesus to Herod, to another ruler, say, you, you make the decision to deal with him. When he comes back, we're going to see him bring out a Barabbas and say, and say who, choose between the one. They're trying to get him to choose someone else to be set free. He's going to pronounce Jesus innocent multiple times. And at the end, when he does have to finally condemn Jesus' death, he washes his hands of it. Okay, there's something going on here with, with Pilate. This man puts people to death probably every other day. Not a big deal. But here he seems very agitated, very concerned. Well, there's some other commentators, uh, in particular James uh, Montgomery Boyce, Frank Morrison. They say that the answer has to do with Pilate's wife. Now, if you know the story, you know that uh, there was a, a point where Pilate's wife sends him a message. It's not recorded in John. Uh, Matthew records it, though. So as this is going on, uh, here is the message. Here's Matthew 27, 19. Uh, besides, while he, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, husbands, uh, I think we would all agree, if we get a text message like that from our wife, we're going to take note, right? That, that's saying something. Our wife had a dream about this, this guy for a judge. We're going we're to think about that. And, and Romans were especially sensitive to this kind of thing. They were very superstitious. They were very spiritual. Uh, a message like this from his wife would have set like alarm bells going off in Pilate's mind as he's there standing before Jesus. He would have considered it a very bad omen of some kind. Uh, he would not have wanted to get on the wrong side of whatever gave his wife this dream. And, and that would explain why all of a sudden Pilate is trying everything he can not to sentence Jesus. Uh, including, this is the part that's helpful for us, including actually asking Jesus some questions, which probably he wasn't planning on doing before because he probably wouldn't have cared. But now, now he's, he's either trying to stall for time, he's trying to figure out what, what is going on. So he actually asks insightful, in-depth questions that we're going to see as the weeks go on. So here's the, the point for us. Uh, here's our first point. There are points in this sermon, I forgot to tell you. There are some points I haven't forgotten. Uh, just two of them, but one, the main one, uh, the point is this. Everything is happening according to plan. Everything in this scene, everything in the Easter story is happening according to plan. Not the Jewish leader's plan, but God's plan. And this is important that we understand this when we're thinking about the cross and the, the sequence of the Easter story. That this was not just some tragic event that happened this wasn't something that God the Father and Jesus had to figure out like a plan B now that all this has happened. Everything from the arrest to the crucifixion was plan A and happened exactly as God wanted it to happen. In fact, uh, we see this in the last verse of our passage, verse 32. 
Uh, it says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had already said to his, uh, to his disciples, this is, I'm going to die by crucifixion. He said it uh, like he always does, kind of a bit, uh, a bit cryptically, but here it is, uh, John 12, 32 and 33. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's, that's the cross, lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he had already told them. And even, even earlier in the Old Testament, we have references to, you know, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, even a, a very oblique reference in Deuteronomy to the one who was cursed, who was hanged on a tree. What we need to understand is that the results of God's plan was always going to be the Messiah crucified. And that we see this plan being put into, into effect. And not just the result was the plan of God, but the, the proceedings, all the events leading up to the cross. So Pilate's wife, getting that dream, prompting her husband to all of a sudden take a, a deeper interest, more intense interest in this man, it was all for the purposes of God's greater plan. Because now, all of a sudden, we have this Roman official, right, the authority in the region, uh, representing really the best legal system in the world at the time. And through his examination, what is he going to find? That the charges that the Jewish leaders are bringing upon Jesus are false, and that Jesus himself is innocent for all time, right? Written down in the pages of history. Now, Jesus is innocent, but then, because of the corrupt character of Pilate, he will still condemn him to death. And so we get a spotlight, Sean, on the character of Jesus, but then he's condemned to death, as prophesied about, as the word was saved, so that he would atone for the sins of the people. Everything happening according to plan. And Peter actually makes the same claim. After Jesus is resurrected, he goes back up to heaven. It's an Acts. They're beginning to tell people the story. Look at how Peter frames the story. Here's Acts 2.22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's saying you're responsible for your lawless deeds, but this was the plan of God. It happened exactly the way that God would want it to happen. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means a couple things. On the one hand, we should simply marvel at the plan of God. That the Easter story, that the crucifixion happened because of God's planning way before the foundations of the world down to every meticulous detail to, to the man who was standing there and his wife and the dream they had all according to the plan of God. We should praise God all the more this Easter season when we think about that level of, of control and sovereign, sovereign care. But on the other hand, on a more like personal note for us, we should recognize that this is how God continues to work to this day. Like he, he is still working his plans out with this level of, of intensity and specificity. Uh, that's why I put the point in the present tense. Everything is happening according to plan. Uh, it's not just that everything was happening in the Easter story back then. It's not just then God was working. It's now, still Everything is still happening exactly the way that God wants it to happen in every aspect of our lives. Now, this is always something that's 
frankly, just difficult for us to accept. For all of us. Because the details of our lives is often difficult you know, to think this is actually part of God's plan. But there are some of us for whom this is just, this is very difficult. There's some of us for whom today the details of our lives are incredibly hurtful, incredibly painful, unjust, uh, unexpected. And so for us to, to try to think that this is, this is still part of God's plan is very, very difficult. And this is why the Easter story is very helpful because this was the exact situation the disciples found themselves in. Right, think of it. At this moment, as we're reading this, right, Friday morning, Peter has just finished denying Jesus, right, three times. Why? Because he's fearful, because he doesn't, he doesn't know what's going, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. John is skulking in the shadows nearby. Everyone else had run for their lives. Mark probably left his tunic running naked through the, through the woods, that's the level of just sheer shock and fear that was going on for them. We don't even know where they are at, at this point. If we were to find some of them, imagine us asking, hey, how's, how's the plan going? How's, how's the plan going that Jesus told you about? They, they would probably say, what plan? What plan? Everything's, everything's falling apart. One of our own has betrayed us. Jesus is never going to get a fair trial. He's going to be put to death for sure. This isn't a plan. This is, this is like a shipwreck. Think, think of what personally would be going through their minds. Three years they've been with Jesus. Wouldn't they be thinking of all the things they gave up? Right? They have maybe no home. Maybe they turned their backs on their, on their family. No career anymore. No reputation. And now he's going to be killed. And they will have nothing. It was a moment of a real crisis of faith for the disciples. But for those who had eyes to see, they could see that God was still at work. Okay, the innocence of Jesus was about to be proclaimed by the highest authority in the land and then he would be crucified and his innocence would be used to atone for the sins of the people. It's not that there wasn't a plan. It's just that the plan was so complex so unexpected, so astounding that it was impossible for the human mind to grasp. Even though Jesus had told them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die. I'm going to He told them, but they couldn't fathom it, even when it was happening. We should be comforted in knowing God's plans are always like this. Like even today, even in our lives, it, they're always like this. Uh, as another example, uh, do you remember uh, Habakkuk? Prophet Habakkuk, Another small uh, book in the Old Testament, just like Hosea. Uh, he famously, Habakkuk, is looking at his life, looking at the state of Israel, and he, he questions God. He questions God's plan. Because everything in Israel at the time was, was wretched and corrupt, and he'd been praying to God about it for a while. And so look at, this is how his book begins. Right? Imagine praying this to God. Oh Lord, he says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is saying, God, what is going on? These are your people. This is your nation. You seem to be totally hands off. Everyone's just doing whatever they want to do. You're not even listening. This is how we feel a lot of the times about our lives, right? I've been praying, God, how could you not deal with this? 
This is clearly unjust, clearly wrong, clearly sin. And yet you're doing nothing about it. Now God responds to Habakkuk. It's like the whole rest of the book. But there's one verse uh, that encapsulates his, his response. Verse five, he says, uh, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And he goes on to explain how he's going to take these whole nations, the Chaldeans, they're going to come in, judge the people, then another nation, the Persians come in. And he describes this massive plan. And the point here is this, Habakkuk, even if I told you the plan, you wouldn't get it. And we need to hear that for us. That, that we have trouble seeing God's plan, not because there isn't a plan, but because our minds and hearts are severely limited in our humanness, in our sinfulness. We don't have the processing power to connect all the dots that God is connecting. We don't have the spiritual clarity to discern God's good purposes, better purposes, better goals than we have for our own lives. And so it becomes for us often a crisis of faith, uh, not because of anything to do with God, but because of us. Because we, we have some sense, general sense. Yes, God is good. God is in control. But then certain things happen and we think, God, how, how could you let this happen? How could this be part of your plan? I can't think of any way that this would be good. And here we see so clearly that God can use even the most grievous sin to bring about the good of his people. I mean, just think of what we see in this text. Think of the, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. They're so careful not even to step right across the threshold into Pilate's area. They don't want to be unclean. Right? That's, their, that's their commitment to being clean spiritually. And yet here, the Messiah, they're ready to kill him so they would maintain their, their, their status and their power. And Pilate, Pilate is going to come to some genuine sense of understanding and about the truth about Jesus. And yet he's going to turn his back on him as soon as the pressure's on because he doesn't want to lose his status. These sinful people, what Peter says, these lawless men, killed Jesus on the cross so that you and I could be saved. Incredible evil used for incredible good. So if we, if we think that the sin that we're enduring in our lives right now can't be used uh, by God for our good, then, then I don't think we really understand the Easter story. And I think that we don't really understand who God is or how he works because this is the essence of faith that we are not able to see where the dots are connected, the good that's coming, but we trust the one who can. We trust the one who has the power to make these things happen in, in our lives. There's one other verse that, that came to my mind. Uh, it, it came up in our morning devotions uh, last week and just a fascinating verse. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So I think a lot of us spend a lot of time wishing and hoping and praying and, and just working, trying to do whatever we could to make the crooked things in our lives straight. And on one level, it's not wrong to do that. God invites us, tells us, come to me, pray. We should be praying for healing, praying for things to be made right. But there are crooked things in our lives, many of them physical health problems, mental health problems, relational problems, so many circumstantial things that just seem bent and out of whack. And if we don't think that these also can be part of God's plan, then we're going to have real trouble trusting him. 
our faith is going to be hindered. The source of our hope as the people of God is that we see so clearly this is always the way that God works. He's always way out ahead of us. He's always doing things that we can't quite fathom and yet it, it always works together for our good. We should be encouraged in that and, and maybe even uh, convicted about the way that we're thinking and praying about certain things. Again, not that we don't pray that things would get better, but that in the midst of it, that God can still be at work. It's the first main point from our text today. But I have one more. It's shorter, uh, but it's shorter because it's really the point of the whole series. And I want us to start thinking along these, along these lines. Uh, and so the, I'm going to say it this way. Uh, no one can be neutral about Jesus. When Pilate said this in verse 31, this is what he said to the Jewish leaders, right? Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. I, I don't think he was just trying to be difficult. I don't think he was trying to be cheeky. I think that's really what Pilate wanted. He was like, oh man, I just wish you would take this guy and just go deal with him yourselves. Pilate didn't want to take sides when it came to Jesus. He wasn't really for him. He wasn't really against him. All he could see was the trouble that both directions would bring into his life. So in his mind, he's like, this is a Jewish problem. You go and deal with it yourselves. But he couldn't. He couldn't just pass the buck because he was the one who was in charge. He was the one who had the authority. It kept coming back to him. He had to decide what to do with Jesus. We're going to see him wrestle with this in the, in the rest of the, the sequence. But I want us, what I want us to understand is that this is also true for us. We, we don't have any kind of position of authority over Jesus, or that kind of thing. But the reality is that for each one of us, we have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. And I want to invite us to consider this more deeply as we enter into this Easter season. I don't know. Probably most of us here are part of the church, maybe already followers of Jesus. It's probably why you're here. But there may be others who are here for other reasons. Maybe you just came with the family. Maybe you just were interested. Maybe you're tuning in online just to kind of check things out. What we need to understand is that the role that Pilate is playing here is the role of every human being. That there will come a day, maybe the last day, where we are going to have to make a call. And what we're going to see from Pilate, I mean, think about it. Even now in this scene, there's a gravitational pull around the person of Jesus. Right? All the deeds, all the things he's done, all the things he said, his very presence, it's, it's influencing Pilate already. Jesus hasn't even said anything yet. Right? Imagine once they start to talk, right? that, that this, the weight, the significance will, will be made so clear and Pilate will be put in this position where he can't, he can't stay neutral. He's got to make a decision. We all do. We all at some point, whether we've been keeping Jesus at arm's length whether we've just been thinking, you know, Jesus, he's someone that the Jews, the Christians, the Ned Flanders of the world, they're going to have to deal with, but I don't, I don't really want to have to make a call on him. Eventually, we are going to have to make a call on him. We're going to have to decide. Do we reject him? Do we accept him? Do we believe this man who claimed to be God and King? So this Easter season, my hope is that for each one of us, whether we already know Jesus as Savior and Lord, or whether we just aren't clear about him at all, I I'm hoping and praying that our clarity uh, would increase and that our affection for Christ himself would increase and that we would come to a place of greater conviction about Jesus himself. So let me pray for that and, uh, and we'll close. Lord Jesus, it's such an amazing 
thing that you, you put yourself in this position, subject to human authorities when you have all authority. Lord, I pray that uh, this would be a really fruitful season for us as a church. I pray that, that we would think more deeply about who you are and what you've done. Uh, I pray, Lord, that, that we would understand that all of this that we're reading, it's happening exactly the way that you planned it out, that you and the Father, that you planned this for our good, for your glory, and that's, that always is the way you work. And so I pray for us today. I pray for those of us that are really struggling with that, just struggling with the difficulties of our lives, uh, the pain, the hurt that's maybe gone on for a long time. Like, like Habakkuk, we might be just pleading, what, what is going on? I pray your spirit would comfort us with the, the, the rock-solid truth that you are at work, that your plans are good, that you have the power to, to transform even the most grievous sin into good for us and glory for you. So I pray that our faith would increase during this season as well and that we would come to know you more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.